0: Um, hello everyone in this episode of the Hewlett-Packard Labs uh, podcast from research to reality I have extreme pleasure to host Martin Sadler OBE uh, and visiting professor Uh, hello Martin hi Um, they say that those who don't know their history are likely to repeat the mistakes from the past. And Martin Sedler is one of the uh, lab directors of HP Labs and HP Labs. Uh, So for that reason, I brought him to tell us all about great, good things, not just mistakes, occasional mistakes, and to also see how he transitioned his career. So I'm hopeful to uh, learn a lot uh, from Martin how he transitioned from industry now to academia. So, can you tell us a little bit about your experience, Martin? What what does it mean being lab director and now visiting professor? Okay, well, I actually started as an academic. I was in computer
1: science at Imperial College in London, and I moved to industry at a time in the UK where very few people in academia, certainly those who are already on on an academic career path, actually moved to industry. I started as a researcher in HP Labs in 1989, um, by the mid nineties, I was managing the research we were doing around e-commerce and very early stuff we started doing around security. So some of the things, um, experiences from back then, um, we actually ran, I think the second live commercial site in the UK for e-commerce. Um, we were selling Wallace and Gromit related, um, kitsch, if you like, um, mm.
0: um
1: for the company. Um, and on the back of that hp won the deal to host the commercial aspects of the 1996 um, world cup soccer world cup um, and we actually ran the security of the payment part of that from the labs because i think at the time no one else in the company knew how to do anything to do with online payments and it was all new territory so that was one of the kind of things where we were very early in. Um, We developed a whole load of um, early hacking stuff. And in fact, we developed a platform where the company could hack itself. And that was deployed a couple of times in the early 2000s um, before the company got a little bit jumpy about, you know, laws in places like Germany about, um, and this was before there was automatic um, updates on on devices. So, you know, not all employees would update the machines. We get something like, code red come along and people would get infected and it would take down a lot of you know, operational systems that we weren't careful. So there was a lot of early, if you like, platform stuff for managing security for the company. And from there, we did a lot of work around securing PCs, and which is in today's products.
0: So this is what you have done with your teams, but if you look broadly as our labs and company as a whole, what did we do right? Have we missed anything?
1: I think in the 90s and 2000s, we were letting a thousand flowers bloom. I mean, almost literally. I mean, there were so many good things going on in the labs. Um, And loads of those things, if we'd got behind them, could have actually transformed the company. But we had too many of them. So kind of, we were doing fantastic work, I think, but perhaps far too much of it. It wasn't until we got to memory-driven computing um, just before, if you like, the company started splitting up, that I think we got back behind the idea of a a moonshot, of a big bang, you know, doing one big thing well, but probably five years too late. If we, five years earlier, got behind one or more of the, you know, we could have got behind security, we could have got behind cloud, we could have got behind some of the networking stuff, some of the AI stuff we were doing, we were doing so many really cool things, any one of which could have transformed the company if we'd gone all in on that one thing, but we didn't. And I think by the time we got to it with memory-driven computing, it was kind of too late for labs to really shift the company. Um, So I think it was that that failure, if you like, to spot the need to come behind one or a very small number of big bets was probably the biggest thing the labs got wrong in the past 20 years. In and terms we're of going work, back to that. The work was, was brilliant. And of course, lots of individuals who did all those things have gone on to do them inside other companies now. So
0: and now if we broaden it up even more so, uh, what is the position of industrial labs uh, in the world today? Are they successful? Are they not? What's the direction?
1: I think it depends on the kind of company that you're in. I, I think you know, if you if, if you mean by digital companies, I think. Outside of the very very large players, it's hard for industrial labs, I think, to to have much relevance. Um, they still do cool work, but it's not obvious that they really shift the companies that they are part of. Um, and so much as you know, we found in HP labs is you know in the industry is about financial engineering. It's about you know making the right business calls at the right times. And so the R and D aspects, I think, were kind of Certainly, you know, over the past 10, 15 years being pushed steadily into the background. I think that's actually changing. And I think one of the things COVID, we can come back on to COVID, but one of the things it's done is, is actually, you know, encourage a return to what's the really core ideas. What's really important here among, you know, around innovation. So I think, you know, there's lots of little pockets of great innovation in industrial research labs. I'm not sure much of it is getting out the door. Um, And it's the same problem for universities in most, maybe not in the US, but in certainly in most of the rest of the world, universities struggle to get the, you know, the really cool stuff they're doing
0: in, you know, out and into commercial hands. So you've been in academia, industry back in academia. How is your current role playing out? Are you trying to bring the Stanford DNA back to academia in, in Bristol? And, um, uh, UK?
1: Well, I keep trying to keep bringing Silicon Valley DNA back into, into the UK. Um, I mean, UK has had a very separate, you know, academia and industry and government have sort of, certainly in digital, sort of largely developed in isolation of each other, um, which has been somewhat unfortunate, I think. Um, it's, it's far less integrated than it is in the US. Um, so a lot of that is just you know getting behind and encouraging all the moves that get parties to actually line up in the first instance, talk to one another. Um, but I think that's changing. I mean, I, the UK is getting better year on year um, around innovation, around startups, about getting stuff out from the universities, connecting that innovation with big companies. So I think we're seeing a seeing a sea change and universities are putting a lot more effort behind their innovation centers and campuses and you know institutes that they're creating so it's it's nice to see in the UK a big change and I think the UK will do well out of that
0: what did you learn from Silicon Valley you're shuttling back and forth between Bristol and Palo Alto many times and and you were uh, in the position to observe Silicon Valley from outside when we were inside you know sometimes you don't see. I mean, it. I think most. I
1: mean, perhaps, perhaps top of the list is that you know, being first to market is everything. I learned that from Silicon Valley, um, yeah. and sort of a high energy passion kind of trumps everything as well. So it's more important to get the passion and the energy going and get out quick than it is mm-hmm. to be right. And I think again, that's something the UK has been slow to learn, has caught up with, but. Um, you know the uk i think in the past because of you know a, a strong reputation for basic research has always focused on doing high quality science and and that kind of kind of went through into the way the uk has done a lot of development there's a lot of stuff that is perhaps over engineered you know that it's, it's it's high quality but it's it if you're third fourth fifth to market it doesn't really matter um, yeah so I think that's probably the most important lessons. It's, you know, get out, get there first. Don't worry about being completely right. I mean, this is all, I think, part of the DNA of innovation worldwide these days. But um, definitely something There's about lot, the DNA.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of discussion about digital space, digital transformation. Who is leading this uh, transition? Is it traditional engineering or some verticals like... Uh, media or maybe uh financial technology how is it happening
1: i'm uh, i guess if you look back over 20 or so 30 years i think it's changed i think when i joined the labs in 89 engineering was very much at the front of what was happening with digital certainly science and engineering was in the 90s if you look at that very early you know if you look at the web out of cern if you look at you know early grid computing that led into cloud computing that was coming from the scientific community Um, but e-commerce completely overwhelmed that so i think you know online commerce and you know web apps dominated for a long while i think you know if we look more recently fintech has had an enormous growth um, not least around areas like you know cryptocurrencies um distributed ledgers and things like that um but just the way that they've They've caught on to using user data and AI techniques. I think FinTech uh, is one of the current leaders of what's happening. Creative industry as well has done quite a lot in the past few years uh, leading aspects of what's happening with digital. Cyber is very strong um, as well, um, which you could think of as coming out of the intelligence world, perhaps. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there's there's kind of multiple fronts. And and perhaps the sad thing is these separate communities don't actually interact with each other as much Mm as... It's not really one digital world anymore. We've got many, many separate digital worlds sort
0: of in formation, but perhaps not entirely. You touched on cybersecurity. Where is cybersecurity going nowadays?
1: Well, it's going to grow and grow and grow Um, and it's going to grow and grow because we keep, you know, introducing new technology, which increases the attack surface, which allows opportunities for online crime. It allows opportunities for online bullying and harassment. And of course, it allows opportunities for nation states to interfere or try and exploit what's going on in other nation states. So I think the big difference between cyber and pretty much all the other areas in, 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 in areas like AI, you're kind of up against the problem. You do some cool maths and you either solve it or you don't in some sense, it's not quite, but in some sense, it's like that with cyber, you're up against other people. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how good you are, it may only last 10 minutes before your adversary decides to do something different or finds a way around what you've done, and then you're back to the drawing board and you know, working out what you're gonna do next. And it's this constant arms race, if you like, that yep. gives cyber, I think, its buzz, which is why I think it, it has been successful in growing, why it retains people who go and work in the space, um, and it's doing very nicely in many, many countries around the globe.
0: So just a few minutes ago, you said that cybersecurity perhaps came out of intelligence community, but who is it driving today? Is it still driven by intelligence community? Are there other actors who are moving this field ahead?
1: I think a lot of the most innovative and most interesting stuff is still very close to intelligence agencies. Um, that's where the boundaries, that's where the kind of the leading edge, I think, is still. Um, Universities were slow, I think, at getting in, you know, there's a few exceptions, but for the most part, universities were slow at getting involved. That has changed a lot in the past five years. Um, sorry.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. Uh, but um so I think there's increasingly some interesting small stuff coming out of universities and startups. Um, but for the most part, the, m- the most stuff I think is 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 connected with governments. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a really interesting interplay now between academia and large business, and which is both defense contractors and IT companies and small startups in this space. So it's quite a vibrant community. Mm-hmm. Many countries doing well. US does well. Israel does well. UK does well. Um, yeah. Many of our adversaries um, for the Western world also have very substantial
0: capabilities. Unfortunately. When I introduce you, I introduce you as OBE. What does it stand for, and why are you called OBE? Well, it's sort of an anachronism in some sense. It's it
1: stands for Officer of the British Empire. So it's not necessarily the t- title that most people want to use, but it, it's part of the UK's honors system which is really a way of recognizing individuals, you know, whether they're sports people, whether they are musicians, whether they are scientists for contributions sort of over and above whatever their day job is. So why did I get it? Is that what you're going to ask me? Yeah. um, In the UK, there are very few people, I think that have worked, you know, in that intersection between government and academia and industry. So in some sense, I got it because I was doing some of the low hanging fruit in that intersection that you know others perhaps could have done um, if more people had been involved but um, I think you know it's, it's just the country recognizing people who are doing their
0: bit to tie different parts of the ecosystem together. You're very modest I think that fruit was hanging a little bit higher you've had to stretch yourself but now that uh, we've given you proper credit um, and proved that you know quite a bit about innovation can you tell us about myths and uh, realities of how innovation happens? You touched on it before, but can we uh, elaborate a little bit more? I think well, I think it's probably different
1: in different parts of the globe and in different ecosystems. In, you know if, if you look in the UK, there's a kind of a dominant narrative, you know which you can think of as based on technology readiness levels, TRLs, that somehow basic research is done in the universities and it's all about translation it's about getting from universities into industry whether or not through startups and then you know out eventually to businesses and and consumers Um, you know everything i've been involved with has been far more messy than that ideas come up all over the place in all parts of the ecosystem and they go in all sorts of different routes you know they might start an industry and go back into university and lots of stuff in cyber has been like that where it started either in industry or government and moved to universities rather than the other way around and of course then universities do different things with it and then it moves back again so i think we're seeing a lot more cycles and a lot more you know people talk about helixes and you know the, the stuff moving back and forth and i think very few organisations actually operate on that basis, but that's sort of what's going on. A lot, I think, is this this kind of complex mix. Um, I think one thing that the US gets better than the UK again around innovation is diversity. Um, you, we can all do better around diversity. Um, I think it's it's valued a lot more. If you look at US startups, and you look at I, I see a lot more. Um, you know not just racial or gender or you know more conventional forms of diversity but you see much more of a mix of ideas um i think again uk is improving on that but we've still got a way to go so i, I you know i think it's something around you know not getting caught up in the bureaucracy everyone you know you, you remember this from so everyone wants to systematize innovation and turn it into something they can turn the handle with on, and lots of really cool, you know, high-value ideas will pop out the end and turn into billion-dollar businesses. It doesn't work like that, you know. It's it's like you can stack the odds a little bit, but you know, it it can come from nowhere, and and the best ideas can fail. So.
0: So going forward, uh, what is the future of innovation? What kind of evidence can you provide? so that we are convinced that that future is likely? Is it as simple as extrapolating from business school professors' suggestions, or how how do we go about innovation going forward? I think many more countries are trying to do it. Um,
1: I think they will probably do okay at the, the small team size innovation, um, the thousand flowers blooming. I think that's pretty easy for most countries to get behind and make happen. there's very little worldwide I think expertise at, at getting you know making moonshots, making big programs successful mm-hmm. and, and sort of if you like managing the creative tensions that need to happen in the middle. Um, so you know it, you either suffer from bureaucracy around some of these ecosystems where someone thinks they can systematize it and they clearly can't or it becomes a heroic thing where one individual is somehow calling lots of shots. Um, mm-hmm. and we have had a few of those heroes, you know, um, but they are few and far between. And actually, even those heroes need a whole cast of, you know, little heroes behind them and um, to make the big things work. And I think what we don't do well globally is actually train people we kind of throw them in the deep end and the silicon valley has been great at throwing people in the deep end you know but it's kind of sink or swim you know
0: you,
1: yep. you either learn how to do it and you survive and you do well or you're out you know it's or you fail and then you have another go at being thrown in the deep end and you, maybe you a third term of being thrown in the deep end but we don't train for it very well anywhere around the globe that i can see and i think yeah. the countries that do that first will be the ones that actually really come out of the current economic and
0: Post-Covid world, in the best place. And floating doesn't really count because there are a lot of sharks around. So we better There's swim. A lot of sharks around. <laughs> and swim fast. So speaking of sharks and um, the 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 whole uh, situation in the world, one thing that comes to mind uh, whenever I think about you is the Brexit. You know, how is it influencing uh, the whole UK, the whole Europe, and even the world?
1: Well, it was, you know, front and centre until COVID came along and then everyone kind of, well, certainly the media lost interest to some extent in Brexit and paid all their attention on what was happening with COVID. But um, um, I don't think any of us know. Um, The good side for the UK is I think it's freed up a certain amount of government thinking where government is prepared to be much bolder and maybe knows it has to be bold. And that in itself causes problems in, you know, negotiations with with Europe because Europe is very concerned with level playing fields and, you know, the UK not, the last thing they want is the UK undercutting on regulation and workers rights and those things. And then having a a very fast paced entrepreneurial culture on their doorstep where all the talent in Europe moves to the UK. um, the uk has still managed you know to recruit people despite um everything and despite brexit there's an awful lot of you know individuals that work here from mainland europe um, in certainly in high tech and in areas like that
0: so i'm glad uh, you're doing well uh, but you mentioned covid covid is another um, huge negative disruption that has happened how um how are the governments and various entities reacting, and what can we learn from that experience? I, I think it's—I mean—it's
1: perhaps too early to know um, because we're looking at second waves around the world, and and we don't really know whether any country has got it right or whether it was more luck, and or what combination of of things that they've tried actually turned out to be successful for them. So I think it's perhaps still too early to know what's really worked and what hasn't. I think one thing you can point to is the scientific community around COVID has rallied around amazingly well um, in terms of looking for solutions and you know, looking for vaccines, looking for testing, you know, looking for anything and everything that helps make you know us get through this crisis losing less people's lives. And, and i think that is incredibly reassuring for the future i mean i'm not sure we should wait with climate change until you know that that point of no return before we, we we really address the problems but it does show you that you know scientists you know research staff around the world when they put their mind to it can do an amazing job of, of meeting challenges and i think that is that is the one reassuring thing about all of this and if we only deployed that same kind of thinking to other global problems, the the world would probably be in a much better place.
0: Um, Let's try to put um, COVID behind us. Um, Let's suppose we are in two years out. Uh, How is this rich innovation ecosystem unfolding? What are the most important aspects? What are the workspaces, uh, international aspects, city centers? How will it look like? Again, I think you're seeing lots of different things in different geographies where
1: people are trying. Um, there's a lot of talk of people working more from home i I don't get that, you know, and, and we've we tried that in the past in, in in HP and I think the reality is, if you really want to do collaboration face to face, there is, there is no substitute for it. None of the collaboration tools really deliver. A anything like enough um compared to -to face-to-face meetings. Um, You know, whether it's around whiteboards or blackboards or whatever, or around sticky notes on the table. People just or even over beer in a you know in a bar somewhere. But it's like that that interaction I think is at the heart of of what makes successful ecosystems. And I think for that reason, city centres I think will remain very, very important. Um, Young people often want to live in city centres because of you know social life, um, they want to walk to work, they don't want to take a car. Um, so I think city centre innovation, um, you know, whether it's campuses for universities, and the University of Bristol is building one, um, or whether it's other kind of venues, uh, or you know, just forward thinking co-working spaces. Those spaces, I think, will continue to be at the heart of, of what makes for a vibrant um, ecosystem. And if you have enough of them linked and enough people around them then that that region will do well
0: well thank you very much martin Uh, i always consider you a great visionary we love business acumen uh, learn i don't think i've said anything that you know everyone doesn't already know but um no 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 but putting it all in perspective it depends when someone else says and when you say with everything you've done so um, thank you for sharing with with our community you're
1: welcome